A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hello everyone and welcome to a brand new series of Hidden Histories in partnership with the Arts and Humanities Research Council New Generation Thinkers. The first guest on this new series of Hidden Histories is Dr Emma Butcher. Emma is an expert in the history of children and warfare, particularly around the 18th going into the 19th century. She talks to me today all about the role of children within within war, children who are actively participating in war, children who were affected by war, and also some of the literature and art surrounding these experiences. We talk about the Bronte family and some of the lesser known work that was created by the Bronte children, and also some of the the roles of children in, in art and how their experiences can shine through. This was a really interesting podcast, and I could certainly see some parallels with the response of children in these environments to the way children behave today. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Emma Butcher, welcome to Hidden Histories. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast to talk about your research on the history of children and war. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to chat to you. So your work begins in the late 18th century. Why were you compelled to start looking into the experiences of children in this period? Obviously, children have existed since the dawn of time. It's not me trying to erase kind of children from from kind of history. But the reason why I decided to start during this late 18th century period is that's really where kind of modern conceptions of childhood, children, a child begin. So you have philosophers like Jean-Jacques Rousseau writing about what constitutes a child and that children should be placed in a separate category to, to adults. So there's this kind of sense that this, this new category, this new space opens up for considering children's experiences, children's actions, children's agency. And also at that same period, it's kind of confusing and complicated because you have enlightenment modes of thought, which were based on rationality, science, which kind of considered the child as this miniature adult that needed to be trained and nurtured and educated morally, kind of properly, in order to be a better adult. Yet you also have the romantic period coming in in this period as well, with great thinkers like Wordsworth, Rousseau, all of these thinkers that basically think that the child should be left alone to be at one with nature, that the child is this essence of innocence, that are born tabula rasa like this blank slate. So you can see how the kind of both of these different sometimes kind of polar opposite categories of child as miniature adult, child as kind of innocent being... You can see how basically that they they both kind of are polar opposites, but they 
smush together. That's very academic, isn't it? They integrate together in order to kind of think about, okay, so children are innocent. They are kind of this blank slate, but also they need to be nurtured properly to be part of a kind of civilised society. So this is where you get all these arguments kind of building up about what constitutes a child. And this is something that then moves through into the 19th century and then moves through into kind of our modern conceptions of what childhood should be and how children should be protected. So it's it's actually pretty similar as it is today because you have all these different theories as to what children need, whether they need something that's quite rigid and scholarly or whether they need to just, you know, for example, start learning to read a little later because that's the natural way that children think. Um, so it, it, all of that, that's interesting, all of that kind of started within this period and this conflict of interests. What were the regular experiences of children during this period? So let's say before we go into the experiences of war, the domestic experience for a child living in the late 18th and 19th century? I think that depends very much on gender and class. I think in terms of kind of working class children, we see throughout the 19th century more laws coming into place about kind of children's work, about kind of childhood protection. This is where charities like Bernardos, the NSPCC, kind of come about. So it's very much this 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 kind of working class regulation of kind of how children should be protected, whether they should work, how they should be educated, this emphasis on education. So there's this kind of sense of kind of children being part of the kind of working elements of society, but this this kind of gradual recognition that all children need to have some form of education, some form of protection. Yet for the kind of affluent classes, I'd say the emerging middle class, um, the upper classes, it's still this focus on boys' education, very much this kind of focus on on, on boys' education. Boys should be moulded to be um, educated in all manners of things, from languages all the way through to kind of maths, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And girls, there was still very much a domestic element there that there'd be kind of basics learnt, but it would mainly be kind of domestic craft, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So there was still very much these kind of separate categories, spheres. But they did blend into one another. I'm actually finding quite a lot of interesting work written by girls about war as well, because I think what I find very interesting about this period is that there wasn't really too much children's literature about. Children's literature existed, for sure. So it started in the 18th century, kind of the the idea of, of producing and publishing books for children to read. But a lot of children were reading much more in terms of magazines, in terms of kind of, I suppose, classical literature. And therefore, there was this sense that children were consuming quite a lot more. But there is this generalisation that children were passive consumers of these texts. What my research tries to do is say that they had agency and that they weren't just passive consumers, but kind of active contributors. So it's interesting kind of thinking about those roles in terms of kind of class and gender and how it's changing. But I think the real focus here is, is, is on education and that and protection. And these are the two categories that become really important as the 19th century goes on. Yeah, which is a, con- a conflict of interest when you've got something that's so dangerous like a war going on. What, um, so what were the wars that were happening in the late 18th and 19th centuries? How did they affect children sort of in the immediacy? 
There was so much going on during this period. I mean, a lot stems from the French Revolution, so 1789, the fall of the Bastille, and then this moves on to being the kind of French Revolutionary War. And this then blends into being the Napoleonic Wars, although that's contested as to where the Revolutionary Wars end and the Napoleonic Wars begin. But the Napoleonic Wars go on until 1815. So you have these, these decades where Britain, where Europe are under war and the Napoleonic Wars are sometimes considered to be kind of the world's first total war because so many countries were involved. But I mean, other these are the wars that I mainly focus on, but you've also got colonial conquests like the Anglo-Maharata Wars. You've also got the American Revolutionary Wars, which are tied into the French Revolutionary Wars. So there's lots going on in this period. But the wars that I'm mainly interested in in this particular period are the kind of revolutionary Napoleonic Wars. Yeah. So would that be a case of children specifically having to deal with absent fathers? Or was it more of a societal shift around the war, conversations around the war, growing up with an understanding of war and combat and conflict and rage? What evidence is there of the experiences of children around this rather than them being directly in, in it? Well, a lot of my research does look at child soldiers within these wars. And that's something to kind of really kind of bring up and say that children were present on the battlefield in all manners. But also children were experiencing war from a domestic setting. You're completely right in the sense that they had absent fathers. They also were under threat as well. This was when kind of Britain, France was threatening to invade Britain, certainly around the kind of 1803 mark. So you have a lot of children's writings, you have memoirs, also from adults recalling their childhood experience of this kind of fear, that bony. So Napoleon was, that was the kind of kid's nickname for him, like the bogeyman kind of thing. That bony would invade kind of Britain's shores and what that would look like. So there is this sense of children both kind of processing on a, in a, on a domestic level, they're processing the disruption to their domestic environment but they're also thinking about wider conversations about war. One of the things which I think is really interesting about this particular period and I think this is why another reason why I start in this period is that romanticism we've talked about that in the context of childhood innocence etc but it also brought to the fore the main idea of romanticism was about emotions was about interiority about what we feel. So for the first time in history during the revolutionary, during the Napoleonic Wars, we have this sense of the first time people being interested in the man behind the uniform. So personal experiences of war, no longer was it just this cog in a war machine, it was this individual going to battle. And a lot of these soldiers, because they'd be on, on half pay after they came back, if they were injured, etc., etc., they actually started this whole genre called military memoirs, which about 200 were published over the revolutionary um, Napoleonic period of soldiers writing memoirs about war, which is why I, I use the Brontes as a case study, because they certainly read them. You have children reading these memoirs, which were published in the kind of mass-produced periodical press of the period. So understanding kind of what war was like for the first time overseas, getting this sense of the armchair reader being able to experience the battlefield, even though they'd had no experience of war. And this to a child is very exhilarating. It's an adventure story, but it's also really frightening as well. 
Yeah, it's interesting that you you mentioned that the sort of man behind the uniform and the emotions attached to it, because it was also conveyed through art during this period as well. And I, I've been recently looking into the portrait of the death of General Wolfe, the impact that that had. And of course, it wouldn't have only been, you know, members of society of the elder society that saw that it would have been children as well. And that had quite a, a visceral impact. It was the period of the military accolade, wasn't it? something that I've been really interested in I've been looking at the artwork of the period as well like General Wolfe and all of the other kind of romantic kind of sentimental landscapes and portraits and I've actually been doing some research on kind of children's role within those portraits because a lot of the portraits show kind of maybe press gangs enlisting someone or the death of a soldier and you have the a lot of children kind of present within these kind of domestic or or violent scenes and the child child's role within those scenes is to stare directly out of the artwork into the kind of viewer's gaze and there's this conversation that goes on between the viewer looking at this horrid landscape and looking at this child and the child kind of representing that sense of morality that ethical conundrum of war and how that maybe impacts the family so that's so in that's really interesting kind of thinking about that emotional element of war and the child's involvement within artwork as well in this period. Yeah, and I love using, I love the idea of using art to look at a child's role, because as you say, they sort of act in this instance as as the the vehicle for empathy from the viewer. So it's this, this child acts as the, as the go-between, which is um, in many ways, I suppose, how you could look at the position of the, the role of children. So were children ever, during this period, we talk about it being a slightly more refined period when you're thinking about, um, you know, ed- children's education, etc. Were children ever combatants? Yes. So one of the things that I've been looking at is certainly in terms of on ships. I think a lot of people familiar with this period are familiar with the idea of powder monkeys, which are basically... Boys uh, were useful on ships because they were small, they were nimble, they could ferry gunpowder from the ship's magazines to the brig, they could basically um, do all of these menial chores. And some of the some of the accounts from battles, so the Battle of the Nile, um, Trafalgar, are actually written by well, I'd say young men, youth, children, around the kind of cusp, the teenage kind of years. But this is another, a whole other question of when does childhood end and adulthood begin? But one of the actually, one of the only kind of accounts from an everyday soldier at the Battle of Trafalgar is by a powder monkey called Robert Sands, who was a working class powder monkey, ship's boy, who was on the HMS Temeraire which was next to Nelson's flagship. So you have this sense of, of really important events in military history being documented by children, by youth. And that's really interesting in itself. There's also a sense that something I've noticed in, in the military memoirs, the, the memoirs that were published by soldiers, is that some of them decide to deliberately market them as being from a youth or being from kind of a young person. And I think there's speculation as to why that is. Maybe it's kind of seen as novelty or there's something quite interesting about seeing things through children's eyes. But certainly children had levels of agency within the kind of battlescape. There's multiple accounts of children, even though it wasn't necessarily 
commonplace to see children on the battlefield. They There are kind of selected, but enough kind of selected individuals that kind of made their way into the army, either through kind of military school or just runaways that would just be part of these campaigns. And that's something that I really want to bring to the fore and just say that even though maybe it's not the predominant history, it's certainly a history that's there, a parallel history that exists. What sort of age would these children have varied from? Were you talking sort of under 10 or more between the sort of early adolescents? Some drummer boys would be under 10. A lot of the time children would conduct like menial tasks. There are instances of children holding and handling weaponry, but weaponry was very heavy. And it's only really in the modern age when the AK-47 is invented that children and child soldiers in a kind of modern context that we understand use weaponry in a kind of much more pervasive sense. But drummer boys, certainly, you have in the French Revolution a number of drummer boys that become kind of martyrs for France. So um, Joseph Barra is a really interesting example. There's lots of artwork of him out there and great kind of mythological stories built up around him about his involvement, about his, you know, his bravery. And Barra becomes this kind of icon of France. He becomes the martyr of France during the revolutionary years. And this is kind of the legacy of the kind of child being a, a, a good asset to the, the army in France is, is kind of replicated in, say, famously Les Mis with Gavroche. Yeah, I was about to say, um, was, um, was his character perpetuated in Les, in Les Miserables? I mean, it's, it's that, that, that legacy of the kind of child in battle being incredibly brave, being this kind of... Gavroche is described in Les Mis as this kind of sprite, as something unearthly, as something, you know, incredibly brave. He sings. And that's how the, the kind of child was represented in this kind of revolutionary context. But certainly, I mean, even in Napoleon's regiment, he had an entire regiment of children, that is something that happened. There was also something called Enfant de Troupe, which was basically where um, families would move with the campaign, with the army, and that there was room for a certain number of children to be officially adopted by the campaign and be able to kind of be part of the regiment and trained within the regiment. So, and this is happening not just this very prolific kind of research in terms of kind of the French, but this is happening in Britain. You know, there are instances of underage drummer boys on the battlefield. Famously, during the American Civil War in the mid 19th century, there's lots of drummer boys on the battlefield. You can find photographs of, of boys in their military uniforms. If you go to the National Army Museum, there's a drummer boy's uniform that's on display. And this boy must have been about seven or eight so there is this sense that even though children are not making up the fighting manpower in any shape or form, you know, their experiences and their narratives are in there. Yeah. I guess the question that kind of comes to my mind with that is you talk about there being an entire um, entire troops of children, especially um, under Napoleon. Like, what is the point to it if they cannot physically make up the manpower it does make you th- so is this is this to represent a sense of national unity i guess uh, what would be the incentive a for this to be a thing in the first place but b for a parent or children themselves to become involved in such a dangerous exercise i think there's lots of different reasons why children become involved in the army i think one is generational and you have a father that's in that's in conflict and you're um, in a military school and you're trained 
or you're part of the regiment. I think that there's a sense of national honour, like you said, and kind of nationalism. I mean, we see that in um, we see that in World War Two. I'm thinking particularly the Hitler Youth. You know, we, we see these kind of acts of country unity and this sense of trying to build strong recruits for the future. And also, I suppose you get the tearaways as well. You get the, the misplaced children, the children who maybe don't necessarily have a home, but feel adopted in a general sense by the home, the domestic home that is the army. There's a sense of belonging there as well. So there's certainly stories of, of children just wanting to belong in a way so I think there's lots of reasons and yeah I suppose it's not that different to the young men you know the adolescents that were signing up for both world war one and two in 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 England as well in Britain you know you have boys who are as young as as 14 who managed to um who managed to get out on the on the on the western front so I suppose it is this sense of uh of glory, which is, you know, children, children latch on, children like sponges, they, they latch onto that, onto that sort of thing. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new custom spray five in one gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. You mentioned, um, we've talked about some representations of children in war and literature and culture, and we talked a little bit about Les Les Miserables, but is there anything else that you, are there any other novels or paintings that you think really identify the child the child's experience during this period one that i find really interesting is leo toy story's war and peace and it's only a really small section of the book but it's when the french are retreating from the failed russian campaign of 1812 and you have this young boy called petcha who's one of the um he's a character in one of the main families in the text and he rides up to a russian regiment And they have some French prisoners of war and they've actually captured a child, a French prisoner of war child. And there's this kind of moment within the text where 
and of Petra's offering him kind of kindness and worried about him kind of what's going to happen to him and there's this really kind of great moment there of Petra who's deciding kind of am I a boy or am I a man you know do I fight how do I fit in here kind of looking at the kind of mirror of himself and having these kind of I suppose doubts as to a child's place within the battlefield so I find that a really interesting moment in the text is something that I just find kind of it's a very small moment but for me it seems like a very big moment in terms of kind of meta child reflections I suppose one other um one other kind of account of a child writing about the Napoleonic Wars that I find that I've found really interesting has been a child called Marjorie Fleming and she died when she was eight but she was a prolific writer poet Walter Scott really liked her work and she's so I mean she's eight years old and yet she's a prodigy in many ways and she keeps a diary and she she kind of has this moment where she kind of considers that the Napoleonic Wars are going on. And I think this is just incredible that she's she's eight. And she says, in, in one moment, at this particular moment, uh, a soldier kind of falls dying in kind of breathlessness, in pangs of pain. And she then says, it's a moment we must all consider like a mandatory consideration. And I just love that kind of, I suppose perspective from a child that that moment of awareness that maybe we don't expect we we think of children maybe as being quite imitative which is in itself important to think of a child you know what do they imitate you know how does it feed into the 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 world but you have this eight-year-old I think even she might have been seven at this point and yes she's a prodigy but she's she's considering this moment of awareness and I just think that that's such a important kind of demonstration of children's agency and something that's really affected me I think when when reading that and so you know mixed with the sadness that she passed away so soon after that yeah such eloquence and insight that you still actually you know to be fair you do get from children they deliver these sentences of total reason (laughs) I think that's the case isn't it that with 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 kids they're just suddenly something comes out of their mouth and you're like what yeah, and you're so schooled and you're like, good point. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, and I think that's, I think there's a long way to go to kind of considering children's voices or children having something important to say. I mean, one thing I found really hard in the archives is trying to actually find voices of children. You know, what is an authentic child's voice? How has it been mediated? Um, has, have things been kept? Because so often the things that we keep are, you know, we throw so much away of 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 children's stuff right there's so many family collections where they've maybe got a token letter that they thought no oh, that's probably their best work and everything else is gone it's like literally a scratch of pencil and you're like yeah i'll just um get rid of that <laughs> so it's probably i suppose you could apply that to um to the past as well um you've touched on the brontes and i'm really interested to talk to you about the brontes because obviously they're very famous in, as they get older but um, there's there's less they're less talked about and there's less known about them as um, as children and as a and as a family in Yorkshire, and they as children had so many imaginative adventures. Can you talk a little bit about some of the worlds that they made up and how that might be reflective of their experiences of war? 
So the Brontes are probably the most complete case study I've found of children interacting with war. So the Brontes were actually born, so the first surviving Bronte, Charlotte Bronte, was actually born in 1816, which was a year after the Battle of Waterloo. So they're growing up in a post-war generation from the Napoleonic Wars, but surrounded by landscapes, surrounded by town and family and everything that has been through decades of war. And as they're growing up, they're reading um, a lot of kind of military material, both both if you if you look at any classics like Shakespeare, like um, Homer, like Walter Scott, it's all there's lots of war involved in there. So they grow up on this kind of classical warfare. But they're also reading a lot of kind of periodicals during that period. So one such as Blackwood's Edinburgh Magazine, um, another one that their father subscribed to, the United Service Journal. And in this lull period after the war, people found it quite boring. I think that not a lot was going on and there was a mixture of kind of boredom, but also I think kind of national trauma that Britain had been through this um, incredibly difficult period. So there was a sense that the periodicals, they all they talked about still was war. So they'd published a lot of these military memoirs, they'd have these military conversations, they'd talk about strategy... So they grew, so the Brontes grew up on this diet of war. And what I found really interesting is that they were incredibly imaginative collaborators. Like when they were very little, they would make up games. They would use the Moors as their kind of play canvas. They would use their secret kind of, um, they'd call them kind of secret bed stories that they'd make up at night. You know, very much kind of collaborative, imaginative children. And they used these templates of war to create this fictitious, magical kingdom called Glastown, which was basically this metropolis built on the west coast of Africa, but very much influenced by the Napoleonic Wars. It was headed by the Duke of Wellington. A fictitious Napoleon lived in Frenchie's land, which was the country next door. And basically, they'd just play out this saga, which was filled with multitudes of characters, events. It went on and on and on. They'd write something every day. And it was very much kind of responsive. So one like sibling would write something, another one would respond to it. And then this kind of went on for a decade. So you can imagine how much material was built up over a decade. And gradually, as with siblings, um, so there's four of them. There's Charlotte, Branwell, Emily and Anne. And Emily and Anne were the youngest of the two. And they felt like their older siblings were getting too bossy. So they decided that they'd go away and create their own world, which is in itself amazing because it's a world called Gondol, where it's headed by an Amazonian warrior queen called Augusta Geraldine Almeida, who's this feminist woman who kind of breaks the hearts of men and puts them in dungeons and leads her her kind of realm to victory countless times. So there's this, this wonderful kind of feminist kind of war angle coming out of both Emily and Anne's work. But I really enjoy Charlotte and Branwell's conversations because they're obviously all together writing this Glastown saga. Then they, they, when the other two break off, they move into their own saga called Angria. And it becomes a lot more kind of mature how they're, they're working with war. And they have on the one hand kind of military celebrities like Wellington. They create a son for him called Zamorna and it's very much high class military heroes. And yet on the other hand, they create other soldier characters like um, Henry Hastings, who's just a, 
everyday red coat who um, is also a military memoirist. So building off this idea of the memoirs in, in the periodicals at the time. And what they do is what I find is so interesting about their work is they're reading these military memoirs and they're understanding the more kind of nuanced effects of war. So things such as war trauma. So this is an age where the idea of war trauma didn't exist. It only existed in a bewildering array of labels like nostalgia, cannonball wind. So the idea that when a cannonball rushed past you, you got a fright. There was no kind of nuanced understanding. But filtering down from these military memoirs, which talked about scenes like seeing um, skulls fly past people, seeing kind of dead comrades sit up and talk to people of soldiers experience kind of melancholia or I or going completely kind of just completely checking out. The Brontes decide to kind of put that within their text. So they create kind of symptoms of war trauma within their saga. And you have for example, Henry Hastings turning to drugs and alcohol in order to cope and being kind of completely and utterly, I suppose, completely utterly damaged by the wars that he's been in. You have Zamorna, which is Wellington's son character, writing this great poem. It's called He Could Not Sleep. He says it's all about him being in pain after battle and seeing the kind of the, the battlefield around him after battle and seeing the kind of redness seep and him not being able to sleep and seeing kind of the dead rise and this very evocative poem. And I just find it so interesting that you've got these children who had no first-hand experience of war. They're di just digesting the war that they're reading, perhaps the war that they're hearing around them, although there's no kind of evidence, there's no letters or anything to suggest they spoke to anyone about war in any meaningful way. But they're able to kind of funnel this through into their own imagination and create probably one of the most important and interesting representations of a country kind of ravaged by war in the early 19th century that we don't really see from anything else. We get this incredible understanding from children or, or youth as the Bronte start writing when they're about 10 or 11, all the way up to when they're about 21, they're doing this saga. And I just find it this this incredible source for understanding how the public feel, how the post-war generation are also feeling. Yeah, it's almost like they absorb everything and they are not uh, hindered or challenged by certain restrictions that as an adult one is challenged by. Um, you know, ad the adult voice is prohibited to a certain extent, whereas the child's voice, it isn't. And I think that that, that's a really great example. This world is a really great example of how children just take everything in and then create quite a quite an honest and empathetic perspective of of, of the literature, the, the the sources, the evidence that they have consumed themselves. I was just going to add that and just say that hundred percent. And also, it's interesting how in the work that we know of the Brontes, so some of their most famous works, like Wuthering Heights and Jane Eyre, there's not mention of war. There is in Charlotte Bronte's Shirley, which is set with the backdrop of war, but war isn't a main topic. But what we do see coming through are violent men, such as Heathcliff, such as Rochester, and these very kind of authoritative, violent, territorial men. And I just find that so interesting when you actually look back and see how interested they were in war, that that's really kind of where they came from. Like, are these famous men in English literature born out of a trauma of war? 
yeah that's a really that's a really interesting perspective and the sort of the rage that circulates around that around the sort of male psyche during this period um so finally i mean how do you think i mean you dedicate all your research to the experience of of children in war how do you think that that can tell us about some of the wider marginalized histories because children are marginalized because they're not considered in the same way that other voices other um, peoples aren't aren't considered i think it's a sense of not seeing marginalized histories as a novelty i think we've got a way to come in history when thinking about kind of what constitutes history and breaking from the kind of norms where you see these as alternative histories. And actually, scholars like myself, scholars that work on women's history, on black history, or any kind of form of history that's considered to be marginalised, that history needs to be integrated within the narratives that of history that we have now. And that, in a sense will just enrich the history that we have from these multitudes of perspective rather than kind of see them as, I suppose, I, I've called my work a parallel military history before. And I'd like it for one day for it not to be parallel, but just to be part of history. And I think that's how we can, as I suppose historians can can promote that and and by changing that viewpoint of how not only you know how we research but how we teach history and how we talk about history generally to you know the public to um other historians but also to just friends and family just normalize these histories yeah yeah absolutely well said anyway <laughs> thank you <laughs> That was my little kind of speech, my politics speech at the end. Got to crowbar that in. It's very important. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Emma. It was such a pleasure to have you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.